Welcome to the Sardis Fellowship Sermon Podcast. Today's message was originally preached on Sunday, February 6th by our lead pastor, Rod Heppel. Today we resume our series in Acts entitled, Acts, You Will Be My Witnesses. For more information about our church, check out sardisfellowship.com. Today we're coming back to our study in the book of Acts. If you were with us this past fall, you know that we were in Acts looking at chapters 1 through 11. And so I just want to do a little refresher as we come back and look at the second half of the book of Acts. First of all, Luke is the author of this book. And he was a medical doctor who investigated everything very carefully because he wanted to make sure that he was giving an orderly account. You can find that in Luke chapter 1, where he references his own language around his intentions of what he's doing. And he's writing this to a governing official by the name of Theophilus. And so this man had some kind of understanding of the stories of Jesus, probably the resurrection, uh, his death, his resurrection. And here's Luke doing his best to help this person know for certain that they can trust the things that they have been taught. Luke is also the author of the Gospel of Luke, which is about the life of Jesus. And here we are in Acts, which is really about the life of the apostles in the early church and what God is doing through them. Luke was a traveling companion of the Apostle Paul, which meant that he had firsthand experience with Paul, witnessing the missionary journeys that we're going to look at, but also hearing the stories from the apostles and the eyewitnesses so that he could accurately record what took place. The title, Acts, is a reference to activities or actions of God through the apostles. Often it's referenced as the actions or the acts of the apostles, but it's really the work of God. It's a continuation of what happened in the resurrection of Christ and now the outcome from that, the coming of the Holy Spirit and what he's doing in his early church to establish this new community of believers, which include both the Jews and the Gentiles together in one body called the church. Now in the fall, in our series, we had this title, Acts, You Will Be My Witnesses. And we took that straight out of Acts chapter 1-8, where it says, From the words of Jesus to those first disciples, and remember, the word disciple means follower. So those first ones who put their faith and trust in Jesus were the disciples. He said to them, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so that's what we were focusing on in the first 11 chapters. It kind of has this movement of the gospel going outward, starting in Jerusalem, going out into Judea, Samaria, and then eventually into the Roman world, to the ends of the earth. And so really, we're focusing on the second half of Acts on the way the gospel moves outward from Jerusalem, which was a Jewish context, to Acts 28, Paul in Rome, which was a Gentile context. And the question I'm asking is, how did it get there? How did it get from Jerusalem to Rome? Well, of course, someone had to take it there. And uh, someone had to be bold enough to step out of their comfort zone in order to be a witness for Jesus. But I also want us to understand that this whole idea of being a witness to the ends of the earth has more than just the geographical movement in mind. Obviously, it has that. It's moving outward geographically. But it's also crossing barriers. Like the gospel is changing lives. It's breaking down those different social and racial and economic barriers that stood between people and stood between the Jewish nation and reaching those people. And in fact, Paul eventually in Galatians 3, 28 will say this about the gospel of Christ. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. The barriers that had been in place were being overcome by the gospel. 
And so the whole idea of going to the ends of the earth also had the idea of the fact that Jesus Christ, his death on the cross, was for all people, and they would be included in this community of believers. And that's why we are a part of this mission still today. So as I've been looking at the last, I'm saying half, but it's more than half, the last 20 chapters of the gospel of, or the, the, um, the book of, of Acts, I've been looking at how much the idea of boldness stands out as an overarching theme. That the followers of Christ were very bold. From their prayers to their preaching, it was bold. And it was bold in the sense that they obeyed this command to be witnesses wherever they went. And sometimes they chose to go and sometimes it was persecution that pushed them out. But they stepped out and God showed up. Even when they didn't know exactly what the outcome was going to be. And I've been thinking about that. I've been thinking about the way in which we read these stories from the Bible. And we might wonder this question. What would it take to see the power of God displayed in the church today? As we see it was displayed in the early church. Like we might kind of wonder about the fact that the Holy Spirit is the same Holy Spirit who was working in those times amongst those people to do that incredible work. Is he not the same Holy Spirit that's working amongst us today? And the answer is yes. So then we might ask the question, so why don't we see more of that? And if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, maybe you've wondered about that. Why don't we see a little bit more of the working of the Holy Spirit and supernatural things happening and the power of God really making a difference in people's lives? But as I thought about that, I spun the question around. I started by, by asking it like this. Am I waiting for God to show up with his power first, and then I'll take a step out of my comfort zone and trust him? That kind of a thing? Or is God waiting for me to step out of my comfort zone and he'll show up in power? You know, I think that a lot of the time we're scared to be bold because we're just not quite sure if God will show up. And so we have a tendency to play it safe. We don't step out. We don't speak up. In fact, we just lay low. And we just see how things go. We think thoughts like this. I prayed that prayer and nothing happened. I tried to share Jesus with someone and they shot me down. In Jesus' name, I've confronted evil and it felt overpowering. I've asked God for victory over sin, but I still struggle. And so we wonder, where are you, God? And we wonder, where is your power? I think we feel like that at times. And somehow it leads to settling in for a faith that's mediocre. A level of apathy that kind of overarches our faith. Where our personal investment in seeking God is very minimal. But our expectation of God to show up in power is very maximal. So I think that we get led to a place where we don't actually seek God with all our heart. And yet we expect God to show up and do something. I think, though, that in our heart of hearts, we don't want it to be like that. We're not truly happy to have a mediocre kind of faith. One where we're not happy to bump along in our Christian walk, just wanting a little bit of Jesus to kind of keep us out of trouble. That's not the abundant life. I don't think that we're satisfied to see none of our family members or friends or colleagues or people on our street come to saving faith in Jesus. I don't think that we're actually happy with that. And can we name someone that has? And I don't think that we're fine to have an entire lifetime where we've invested it in so much only to have at the end of the day that there's nothing stored up for eternity. And I don't think that we're happy to have our kids bombarded with the way of the world day in and day out and yet not know the way of the Lord and the goodness that comes from that. I honestly don't think we're happy with that kind of faith. 
I think if we're honest with our truest feelings and our heart of hearts, we want God to show up. We want to see a difference in why I'm living this life and that there is something stored up for eternity. That my friends, family, neighbors, and whoever I meet come to faith in Christ. That my kids know the truth of who God is. That they can tell that the message of the world is not the way of Jesus Christ. And the path of Christ is much better. We want that. And I think that we truly want this more of what we see in the book of Acts. That God would move powerfully amongst us. But what we notice is that people stepped out of their comfort zone. And God moved. And I think there's some kind of a key there for us too. That if we don't step out, why would we see any change? Why would we see the power of God? And I want us to assess if we're doing this in our own lives. So that's what we're going to be looking at as we go through this second half of the book of Acts. We look at the witness of these early believers as it went from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. We're still in that continuation today. Our story today comes from Acts chapter 12. I'll put the uh, story on the slide here in a moment, but you could also get your Bible and read it. Uh, it takes place in the city of Jerusalem. It's um, happening at the time of the Passover, which is significant for a couple of reasons, because that time frame reminds those first readers of two events. One, Jesus was taken and killed at the Passover, but also rose to life. And also, the nation of Israel celebrated their first Passover when God brought them, rescued them out of Egypt and took them into the promised land. So they'll have that in the background as they're reading this story about Peter and another rescue story of how God's power shows up for those who live for him. And, uh, and, and they're going to be referencing that this is the God who still saves. This is the God who's still about the business of taking Israel out of Egypt and taking Jesus from death and bringing him back to life to give us that same eternal life. So let's read this story together in Acts chapter 12. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. After arresting him, Peter, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was asleep, or Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrist. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals. And Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself, and they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the outer entrance and a servant named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was overjoyed. She ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter is at the door. 
You're out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said, it must be his angel. But Peter kept knocking. And when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this, he said. And then he left for another place. In the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. After Herod had a thorough search made, of, uh, made for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed. Wow, that's an amazing story, right? So it starts off in Jerusalem with Herod, who is actually King Agrippa I. You wouldn't know that because the Bible mentions lots of Herods, but this is the grandson of Herod when Jesus was born, and a relative of Herod Antipas, who um, was where Jesus was on trial when Jesus died. So there's, you know, three generations of Herods. This is the grandson of Herod the Great. And the story takes place in Jerusalem. And he's King Herod, and he's arresting Christians. I mean, those words right out of the gate are enough to strike fear into the hearts of the readers of this story. They get it. They feel it. This King Herod wanted to protect his political interests, which meant pleasing the Jewish leaders so that he could be popular and stay in power. And so he did things to please him, like taking John, uh, who was, by the way, um, uh, taking James, the brother of John, who was one of Jesus' best friends, and putting him to death. And when he saw that this pleased the people, he figured, well, who else is a big wig in this new sect that is coming and moving and creating the waves here in Jerusalem? Peter, he's a leader. And so he takes Peter and he throws him in jail. His plan is that he's going to bring him out for a public trial after the Passover festival. Well, make no mistake about it. His public trial would be a public execution. That's what he had in mind. If killing the first apostle pleased the Jewish people, well, then it makes sense that killing Peter would do likewise. Herod is on a roll. Peter finds himself in prison for some time, it seems. He's well guarded. There were four watches throughout the night. So there were four sets of guards, four in each set of guards. And uh, two would stand outside of the cell and two were inside. And Peter's chained to the two inside. So he is very well guarded. But it says the church is praying for him earnestly praying to God. I think there's an emphasis here. They are earnestly praying for him, Peter, to God. Why? There's no other hope. That's why. Now, what do you think they were praying for? I mean, it doesn't specifically tell us here, but it stands to reason that they were praying for his life to be spared. I mean, if James had just been killed, then they're also fearful that might be the demise of Peter. Peter is asleep. Pretty good to be able to do so. Um, facing chain between two guards and an angel appears in the cell along with a very bright light and that isn't enough, it seems, to wake Peter from his slumber. Um, he's in deep sleep. This is a gift that some men really have that during the night they don't hear the noise and activity of what's going on. Things like a crying baby and uh, you just need to understand this is genetics. That's it. There's nothing that can be done for men. It's just simply genetics, you have to accept it. Accept this one thing, the angel hits him. So that could be a part of your strategy too if you need to get your husband out of bed for the crying baby. But the angel strikes him. Whatever that looks like, I'm not sure, but he took it to the next level and he wakes Peter up. He says, wake up, get up. The chains fall off Peter. The angel tells him to put on his sandals, put on his clothes, to follow him. They do, they, they walk through 
uh, you know, they get out of the gate, the doors open, they go to the city, the gates of the city open, they find themselves out on the street, and it's at that point that the angel leaves them. And there's Peter realizing now that it's not a dream, that this is actually true, that he's been set free from what? From the clutches of Herod, right? From the plan that Herod had to kill him and from the things that the Jewish people were hoping would happen. Well, what were they hoping would happen? They were hoping that the same thing would happen to Peter that happened to James. Now Peter gathers himself and he heads towards a place that's familiar to him. He goes to Mary's house. Mary is the mother of Mark or John Mark. And you're going to hear this name come up in a little bit in the book of Acts here. So a little bit later we'll get to him. This John Mark eventually becomes an assistant to Peter and is the very one who writes the gospel of Mark, most likely getting his eyewitness accounts from Peter himself. And so Peter goes to John Mark's house. When Peter arrives at the outer gate, the, the house servant, Rhoda, or Rose, that's what the name means, uh, goes to answer the door. Uh, while the rest of the people are inside doing what? They're praying. They're praying fervently, earnestly. For what? For Peter's release. And when she recognized Peter's voice, she was overjoyed and she ran without opening the door and she exclaimed, Peter's at the door. To which everyone in the room says, yes, thank you, Rhoda. We know because we've just been praying about this. We were only wondering when it was that he would show up. No, they did not answer that way. In fact, they first call her crazy, you are out of your mind, and then they land on this idea that maybe what you heard was Peter's uh, guardian angel, the voice of his angel. Uh, one thing they knew for sure, it wasn't Peter. Meanwhile, Peter's standing outside the door and he's knocking on that outer gate. So they finally go to see who it is. And when they see that it's Peter, they were astonished. <laughs> they were astonished. They're not expecting to see Peter. Peter motions with his hands, keep it down, probably because he's fearful that the guards are somewhere around looking for him now. He tells them how the Lord has miraculously released him and he wants them to tell James and all the believers about it. And I think that's kind of important. There's been an answer to prayer. Please tell everyone. Why? To God be the glory. You need to be encouraged. God is still amongst us. Yes, he throws us in prison. Yes, James was killed. But yes, he also releases. And yes, he still has a plan and a purpose. And it's not always the same for every single one of us. For Peter, it was to be released because he was going to still use him in a mighty way. Go tell James. Tell the brothers, tell the sisters, encourage them with this answer to prayer. Peter then leaves for another place. That's kind of interesting. Um, probably it's no longer safe for him to go anywhere in Jerusalem. Herod's looking for him, so he goes into hiding. Which is interesting for this reason, because in, in Acts chapter 5, we read about a previous release from prison, where the angel gave him a command to go back into the temple courts and preach, which Peter did, as well as the other uh, apostles. But this time, there's no command to go back to the temple courts to preach. There's no instruction like that. God has other plans for Peter at this time. And so Peter does what any one of us would do. You go find a place that's safe. And so he leaves for another place. In the morning, when Herod discovers that Peter is missing, and he has an inquiry as to what happened, and he's not satisfied with the situation, as was a custom at the time, a Roman soldier who uh, was guarding a prisoner, if he, did not, if he lost that prisoner, his life could be required of him and often was a life for a life so this is Luke's story and it's an amazing story because it's miraculous right I mean there's an angel and the bright shining light there's the the guards at the door and the guards with the chains and they don't wake up and the chains fall off and the doors open up and they get outside and it's not just a dream or a vision it's actually happened and so it's a miraculous story 
And we're intrigued by that. But the part that I want us to focus on here today that I'm intrigued by is the part about prayer. It's because there's something here that resonates with myself about the realness and the honesty in how we pray. You know, Luke chooses to tell a story about these faithful believers who were gathered together in the night, praying earnestly, seeking God, really believing that it is only God who can save Peter. But they didn't really expect that their prayers would be answered. And quite frankly, I think that we pray prayers like that. Verse 5 says that the believers were praying about Peter's situation. Meaning that this earnestness of heart was a sincerity. That they were moved with compassion. That's why they're sacrificing sleep at this point to be there. Peter had just been asleep, but they weren't. They were in a house praying, right? This is late at night. This shows the fact that they, they know that they have to intercede. Intercessory prayers when you're praying on behalf of someone else. Knowing that their situation is dire. Knowing that maybe they don't even have the capacity to pray for themselves. And people are standing in the gap. So they're doing this. And they're doing this earnestly. You've been there, right? You've been there because there's situations in life that are serious. And they're overwhelming. And we get to that place where we're so desperate that we pray with all our heart and we beg and we plead with God about the situation. The irony here in this story is that those believers who have been praying earnestly for Peter's salvation don't believe Rhoda's testimony when she comes in to tell him, he's here, it's happened, our prayers have been answered. And it seems like they actually argue about it and have time to devise what maybe it was. The whole time, Peter, standing at the gate, knocking, there's your answer. Don't you find this interesting? Don't you find it realistic how we, how we might respond if we're in a prayer meeting and something miraculous happens? You know, we know God can move, and we know that God has moved, and we know that God answers prayer, and we do believe God to be all-powerful. And yet at the same time, we also have those experiences where we have prayed something whereby God hasn't answered our prayer the way we want him to answer it. He doesn't do that every time. And so I wonder if we pray believing, if we pray in earnest, or not. So we too are astonished when God does the impossible. The against all odds, he answers that prayer. And rightfully so, because it's outside of our human ability. This is in the God category. And when God moves, we are astonished. So let me ask you this question. Have you stopped earnestly seeking God for something that you deeply care about? And have you stopped seeking God about that because you just don't think that he will or can answer your prayer? You know, if I'm going to be honest, I don't know how prayer works. Not perfectly. It's a really tricky piece of theological understanding. You can read through the New Testament, and if you're familiar with your Bible, you know all of the various places where it talks about asking and receiving and believing and having it done for you. There's probably a dozen different passages that you can go to that talk about your faith and believing and trusting and asking and God doing it. And it always seems so assured that whatever you ask in faith will happen. It will result in the healing, the restoration, the fixing of the problem. But when it doesn't happen, we doubt God, we doubt his goodness, we doubt his power, and we stop praying earnestly. But here's what I do know about prayer. I know that prayer is as much about aligning my heart to God and his will for me as it is about getting what I think I need or want. Prayer is as much about aligning my heart to God and his will for me as it is about getting what I think I need or want. But if I'm being honest, I start with my needs and wants, right? That's where I start because that's what my heart 
is aching for, right? I ask God for the healing. I ask God to intercede in a situation that seems impossible. I earnestly plead with him for my children, for my family, for my friends. I want things to work out. That's my want. That's my heart. That's my need. And in prayer, I start there. But it's in prayer where then God begins to act. It's there where God takes me somewhere. He begins with the ache of my heart, but he takes me somewhere. And here's where he takes me. One, to a place where I know that he is God and I am not. You know, prayer is an act of humility. It's an act of me submitting my will to his. It's an act of understanding that I completely depend upon God. Therefore, I'm merely a steward of everything and anything that he gives me in this world. I don't deserve it. I haven't gotten it. I haven't made it. God has given it. Therefore, I am merely a steward. And I go to the one who is in charge. My very breath that I breathe comes from God. So it helps me in prayer that he takes me to a place where I'm reminded of this truth that he's God and I'm not. Secondly, he takes me to a place where I know that he's good. And he gives good gifts. Once Jesus said, if you then, though you are evil, referencing the fact that we have a propensity towards sin that God does not have. You then, even though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your Father in heaven give you? It doesn't say good gifts. It says gives you the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. That's an interesting answer right there. And I wrestled on that. And I thought, you know, the good gift of the Holy Spirit is the fact that God gives us the one thing we need to get us through. The Holy Spirit may produce the miracle and we go praise the Lord. Or he may choose not to give the miracle, but he gives you the strength to endure, to suffer and go through it. The refining fire, trials of all kinds. He takes us to a place where we know that he is good and his good gift that he gives is the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit never leaves us nor forsakes us. Lastly, he takes me to the place where my heart aligns to his will in a given situation. Maybe you've heard this before, you probably have, but God answers prayers in three ways. Yes, no, and wait. Not yet. I'm not sure if this helps you or not, but it does me. I, I, I may want a yes, but I can't force it. I, I may want it now, but I can't make it happen in that time frame. When God answers a prayer, yes, what do we do? We rejoice and we tell others. Just like Peter here told those believers to tell James and the other believers about this good news and celebrate it to God be the glory. Be encouraged. God does give yes answers to our prayers. When God answers a no, then he massages my heart to a place where I'm soft. Then I can accept his will and trust him. That his plans and purposes are still good, despite the fact that he's not showing up with his power to answer my prayer as a yes. You see, it becomes the power of God in me at that moment, not the power of God displayed in the healing or in getting the thing that I want or fixing the problem I have, but rather the power of God in me to strengthen me and give me the grace and the peace and the patience that I need in the middle of the pain and the sorrow and the suffering. But nor is it the end of the story. So sometimes God says, not yet, just wait. Write prayer. A yes answer is coming, just not yet. And I'm, reminding that, I'm reminded in these moments that his ways are higher than my ways and his plans are higher than my plans and he knows what's best. So have you stopped earnestly seeking God in prayer 
for something that you care deeply about. Because I want you to pray. And tomorrow is a day of prayer. We set aside the first Monday of every month where we encourage our people to pray and fast. Uh, we began this during COVID and we've been carrying it on here. And we know that it looks different for everyone because everyone has a different kind of work schedule or whether or not you can fast. And that's not the important thing. The important thing is that you actually intentionally take a look at your own life and say, okay, on the first Monday of the month, can I actually do something that's intentional about seeking God more in prayer or fasting where you go without something and you're going without that because then it reminds you that I am praying and I am seeking God and my source of strength comes from God not that thing that I normally would be doing sometimes it's food but it could be other stuff too you choose how you want to do this but our focus for tomorrow is on family praying about our families whatever your family looks like whatever stage you're at there's surely something that's close to your heart that you need to bring before God earnestly. And maybe you haven't lately. And so today's the opportunities. We're talking about praying fervently and earnestly and seeking God to do the impossible, that you bring that thing that you have stopped praying about back to God. Maybe it's young kids that you have and you're raising them and you're trying to teach them in the way of the Lord and you're hoping they come to faith in Christ. Maybe it's kids that are older and teenagers and they're hearing so many voices and so many messages from our world around them and the confusing emotions and feelings that they have in the teenage years are so difficult and you so badly want them just to hear the voice of Jesus as Rob Schaff was talking about last week, to hear the voice of the shepherd and to say yes to him, to say no to the world, to walk in that path that is right and good and true. Or maybe your children are adult children and they're not walking with the Lord at all and this breaks your heart. Maybe you don't have children, and it's not about children. Maybe it's about parents or family tensions or marriage relationships. I remember once fasting and praying for a friend's marriage relationship because it was in trouble. And I thought to myself afterwards, I haven't even fasted and prayed for my own marriage. We should. If you would like our staff to pray for you, we're, we're doing something for tomorrow, for this day of prayer, which is this that you can go to our website and you can click on that button right there that says prayer request. It's on our front page. Just scroll down. You'll see it. Click on it. Um, for tomorrow, usually that would go to our prayer team. We have various people in the congregation that are on prayer teams and pray. But for this week, what we're going to do is leave that button set to go to our pastoral staff. So if you click that and you submit your specific prayer request that you would like us to pray for you, it will just go to our pastoral staff for this week. I don't know what that situation is, but we want to stand with you. And if you want us to pray specifically, then you can email it to us or just go to that button and submit it. I want to leave you with this one story from Mark chapter 9. We read about a man who brought his son to Jesus. He was demon-possessed or possessed by an evil spirit that did all sorts of horrible and violent things. And this is what it says. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for one who believes. Immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. You know how many times I've prayed that prayer. I do believe God. Help me overcome my unbelief. What's your unbelief? I'm inviting you to bring that before God in earnest prayer this week. I'd like to pray together. Join me. Father, as we humble ourselves before you, we acknowledge that you are not only the creator of this world, but you are the redeemer of our souls. You are the savior who has come into this world and given your life in Christ, raised to life to give us abundant life. And we long for that. We long 
for our own hearts to walk rightly before you, to be filled with the joy that comes from obedience, to be able to guide our children, to be able to share boldly with others this good news. But we need you. Empower us and fill us with your spirit, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So my questions for today aren't really questions. As we look at our day of prayer and fasting for tomorrow, I'm inviting you to write down some names of family members and situations that you're going to pray about tomorrow. And the second thing is if you do want our pastoral staff to pray about a specific need, then just go to our website and email or submit that to us and we will gladly pray for you. Thanks again for listening to the Sardis Fellowship Sermon Podcast. For more information on Sardis Fellowship, please check out sardisfellowship.com.